Healthy Hacker, Episode 21. Hello and welcome to The Healthy Hacker, where we talk about programming, puzzles, memory fitness diet, and everything else that you, a healthy hacker, find interesting. I'm Chris Hunt, and today we are going to talk about job offers or compensation, how to get the most out of that next job offer. What kind of stuff should you be asking for? What should you not be asking for? Maybe you should just accept the offer right away. Lots of things to think about. Now, I'm not an expert by any means, but I have worked at a number of companies, so I've seen my own job offers. I've also interviewed at the last five companies I've worked at, so I've seen a little bit about how hiring boards work and the stuff they look for and even how desperate they can be for for candidates sometimes. So it's not always you begging to get the job. A lot of times the companies really want you to work there too. So that's something to keep in mind. So again, this is just my experience as a starting off as a junior developer and then getting the title software engineer. And then today I, for the very first time, was able to convince somebody to put senior in front of my name. So that's all part of the offer, controlling those titles and coming up with how you're going to be compensated and things like that. So I'm going to talk about my experience with that. But before we get into that, let's do the workout of the week. The workout of the week is a section where I like to take a workout that I've done this last week and I share it with you. And if you're looking for something to do, maybe you can give this a shot. So one of my favorite workouts this week is three rounds. The first round is 21 repetitions. The second round is 15 repetitions. And the third round is nine repetitions. And what you're going to be doing in these rounds is strict pull-ups and strict handstand push-ups. And strict means you don't flail around. You just try to keep a tight body and do the movement. So with pull-ups, you might have seen people doing uh, what's called kipping, which is where you, you know, uh, it, I guess it's kind of hard to express in words, but you fling your body weight up and that's going to help you get your chin over the bar. So the goal of this is to do them strict where you're not flinging any body weight. You're just pulling your chin up with your back and with your arms and then bringing yourself back down again. So the way these three rounds work, the first round, like I said, is 21 reps. You do 21 repetitions of strict pull-ups and then 21 repetitions of strict handstand push-ups. Then the next round you do 15 reps of strict pull-ups, 15 reps of strict handstand push-ups, and then the last round is nine repetitions of strict pull-ups, nine repetitions of strict handstand push-ups. Now, if you can't do these movements, they can both be adjusted to be a little bit easier until you get that strength up to do this. So if you can't do a pull-up, then maybe try what I just said not to do, and that is a kipping pull-up. So this is where you can fling your legs, kip your knees up, you still keep a tight body, but you use the momentum of moving the center, moving your core back and forth. It's kind of like if you were to do um, monkey bars. You kind of fling your weight um, back and forth and so you can reach for that second bar. You can do that on the pull-up bar as well, and that's going to help you get your chin over the bar. A better strategy, though, is to get a rubber band. They have these giant bands at fitness stores. They're very inexpensive. I like to buy my stuff like this from roguefitness.com. They have every piece of fitness equipment you can imagine, but they also have these bands and they're in different strengths. So you can get five pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds. And the way that these help with pull-ups is you can wrap one end around the bar and then put one end under your foot. And then as you do a pull-up, that band is gonna be 
helping you get your chin above the bar, and then eventually you won't need a band anymore. And finally, if you don't want to um, purchase a band, you can also use a box or a chair or find a low pull-up bar, and you can just jump off of it to get your chin above the bar. And the lower you lower that box or that chair, the higher you make the bar, the less you have to jump and the stronger you can get. Now, with strict handstand push-ups, these are difficult for most people. So uh, a lot of people are going to need to scale this. And there are a couple ways to do that. One is to make it so you just travel less distance. So if you are comfortable standing on your hands, uh, leaning against a wall, you can put something under your head so you don't have to go down as far. So maybe a pillow or a box or a pile of papers Whatever you want, you just put something between your head and the ground, and that's going to make it so you don't have to travel as much distance, and it makes it a little bit easier. If that's uncomfortable for you, if that's still a challenge, then you can not do a handstand at all. Instead of standing straight up on your hands, you can put your knees on a box or on the bed or on a chair or on a bench, something like that, and just do something that's kind of like a push-up, but your legs are much higher in the air, so it makes it a little bit harder. Again, the goal here is to, to get as close to a handstand as you can, and if that is still impossible for you, which understandably it could be, then the next way to scale this would be to do a regular push-up. So give it a shot. That's it for this week. 2159 of strict pull-ups and strict handstand push-ups. Okay, so let's talk about job offers. Now imagine that you have found a company that you really want to work at, right? You've done a bunch of phone interviews, like maybe three or four interviews. Now they've flown you across the country. Maybe you're looking at San Francisco. You've landed in San Francisco. You're spending the night in this weird part of town, the Fisherman's Wharf or something. Um, and then now you're going into the office the next morning for your in-person interviews. And usually these take all day long for some companies, you know, four hours or something or even longer, five, six hours. And you're going to talk to a bunch of people and you're going to Try to make everybody think you're super smart and a good fit for this company while at the same time learning as much as you can about the company and see if this is really a place that you want to work. So this is a two-way thing, you know. You're interviewing everybody else as much as they are interviewing you. And your goal at the end of this is to kind of communicate to everybody how awesome you are and so that they really want you to work there and you really want to work there as well. Then you'll probably meet with the recruiter, have a little wind down conversation, talk about anything that went well or didn't go well during the interview. And at this time, at a lot of companies, the recruiter is also going to try to feel out what kind of compensation that they should be offering you if they decide to move forward with an offer. So this isn't like combative or anything like that. This is more of just whoever has the most information while producing an offer generally gets the better end of the deal. So if the recruiter knows how much you made at your last position, if they know kind of what you're looking for in this next job, they can use that information to craft a offer for you. If you happen to know how much people at this company are already making in, in your position, then that kind of gives you an advantage because you know what kind of salary and other types of compensation to expect. So the whole point of this you know, final meeting on these on-site interviews is just for each side to collect as much information as they can so that they can make an offer that works best for them and for you, but everybody's got their own agenda, right? You want 
$20 million a month, right? But that's unrealistic. But your goal is to maximize the amount of compensation that you're going to get for the amount of work that you're going to do. And the goal of the company is to not necessarily minimize that, but to make you happy, make you an offer that you're excited about, but not offer you more than what's necessary. So if they have a pay band that's say, you know, a hundred for, for this position, let's say they have a pay band that's like a hundred thousand to 120,000 or something like that. And in your mind, you're thinking, man, I would be stoked to get $85,000. They could offer you the absolute bottom of the pay band that they're giving to people, and you would be stoked about that. But maybe your interview went really, really well, and they're not wanting to offer you the bottom, they're wanting to offer you somewhere in the middle or somewhere near the top, right? If they don't have that information of you wanting only $85,000, there's potential that you're gonna get quite a bit more money. So during these final meetings with the recruiter or even conversations leading up to the interview, you're not necessarily trying to hide information, but you're, you're more of just trying to make it clear how valuable you are to the company and how excited you are to work there, but you're not necessarily trying to give them any specific numbers because for whatever reason, we have to play this weird game of not being able to talk about numbers because it seems to make everybody uncomfortable. Okay, so imagine when you went into the grocery store that nothing had prices on it, right? You're walking through with your cart, you're grabbing a couple apples, then you're gonna grab some kale, then you're gonna grab a sweet potato, and then you go around the corner, you're at the butcher, you grab like a pound and a half of bacon and half a pound of the chorizo sausage, or at Whole Foods in case you can't tell. You keep walking, maybe you grab some eggs, you grab one of those like frozen cauliflower pizza crusts, and then you go up to the register, and you put all your stuff in the little conveyor belt and it slides up and they scan it in, it scans all the barcodes and then you see this big list of all your stuff. You know, it's written right on the screen. Five apples, a pizza crust, pound and a half of bacon, half a pound of chorizo, sweet potatoes. It's all right there on the screen, but none of it has prices. And then the person behind the register takes a moment, they kind of pause, they look at you, they smile and they say, wow, you know, I'm really stoked that you came here to buy groceries today. How much do you think that, that you should pay for these? And then there's this silence. Nobody really says anything. And then finally, just out of the awkward silence, you try to think about the last time you bought groceries. How much did you pay? I don't know. I mean... Oh, such a while ago. Was that a different store too? I'm not really sure. I didn't buy apples or pizza crust or chorizo that day. So I'm not sure. I didn't keep the receipts. I'm not sure how much everything costs separately. Hmm. So basically you have no idea how much your groceries cost. And it seems kind of weird that the person behind the register who stands there all day ringing up groceries also doesn't know how much the groceries cost, right? Well, here's the thing. They do know how much the groceries cost. And they may not know exactly how much this pizza costs, but they know generally when people come through with this kind of stuff, this is how much those groceries are going to cost. This situation, this awkward situation of having to come up with a price of a thing that you don't necessarily know a lot about, and you don't know maybe how much the grocer paid for these products, 
you know, what they should cost even like, are they paying $2 or $3 for these pizza crusts and selling them at $5? Or did they pay $20 for the pizza crust and they actually cost $30? You don't have this information. You don't know what's going on. This is just like getting a job offer at most companies today. You go in, you talk to the recruiter. The recruiter knows exactly how much they can pay you. They know exactly how much they want to pay you. They know the exact level of the position you're applying for. They have a ton of information and you have very little information. And for some reason, we're okay with this and we just don't talk about it. And why is that? Why is salary such a taboo? Well, I don't know. But what I do know is that it's not like this in all countries. I lived in Japan for a period of time when I grew up. My parents were in the Navy. We lived there for six years. And people were very open about how much things cost and how much money they made. And it was often a question that you would ask when you're meeting somebody. Whereas in the United States, it's something that you almost never talk about. And I think that's because most people are in either one of two categories. They either are embarrassed by how much money they make. They feel that they should be making more. So they don't tell people about it because... It is a measurement of how valuable they are as a person, right? If you are only being paid $5 a year for your job and you feel like you should be making $100,000 a year, that's going to affect your self-esteem if you attach your value as a human to how much money the company you're working at is going to pay you for. So that's one camp that I think people are in. And then there's a second camp where people are actually making an amount of money that they're very happy with but they still don't want to tell people because they don't want other people's opinions to change. So if I'm making millions and millions of dollars a year, maybe I don't want to tell people that because now they're going to look at me in a different way and they're going to expect me to pay for dinner when we go to dinner. They're going to you know, not be, think that they can't relate to me. It's uncomfortable to talk about compensation in the United States, but it doesn't have to be this way for you. You can make the choice to talk about it. And I'm going to talk about some some strategies for doing that. But before you even get started on this journey of exploring other people's compensations and your own compensation, one way of thinking about this that helped me is to not consider your job your life. Okay. Now, it can technically be your life. This could be something you're very passionate about and you spend a lot of time doing. And for most of us, that's the case. But don't think of this as the only part of your identity, right? You work. You may work at this company. You love working there. They pay you. But you also do so many other things, right? You're a photographer. You're into fitness. You're into movies. You have friends. You're building relationships, Maybe you're a musician, you play the piano, you play the trumpet, you play the drums, maybe you sing, you know, maybe you do a podcast. These are all parts of your identity that you can use to measure your value rather than just thinking about salary as how much you are worth, right? So the reason why this is helpful is because then it's easier to talk about your salary because you're not using that as a measurement of here's how valuable I am as a person, 
you're using this measurement as like, this is basically how much this company is willing to pay me, right? It's not about you, it's about them. You could be doing the same job at company A and the same job at company B, and the compensations could be very different, but that has nothing to do with you, right? That's just because company B is willing to pay more than company A. So putting yourself in that frame of mind makes it a lot easier to have conversations with people about salary. So now let's talk about some strategies that you can use to give yourself the maximum amount of information for a job offer to negotiate it to your advantage. And this is usually stuff you'd want to do before even going into the on-site interview. And the reason why that's important is because I've actually applied to companies. I've gone through the interview process. I've showed up for the on-site. And that same day before even leaving to go back home, I get an offer. It's important to to before you go to the on-site interview, be as prepared as you can just in case you don't have time to do research when you get back home and they give you an offer that's got like some crazy time limit on it, like 72 hours or something. Companies do that all the time and if it's a place you really, really wanna work at and you wanna be able to accept or decline the offer within that time frame, you should really have the maximum amount of information before going to the on-site. So, how do you get information about compensation? Well, by far, the best way to get compensation is to, to talk to other people that do the job. So, this can be other people at the same company. These can be friends at different companies. But the important thing here is to look for companies that are very, very similar to the one you want to work at because they all pay very differently, right? A small five to 10 person bootstrapped company that hasn't taken any funding, they may not be paying that much at all and they may not even be interviewing people they don't know, right? They're interviewing friends. And in this case, you're probably the friend of somebody that works there and you can just ask them straight up what people are paying and usually you can get that information. If you're applying for like a larger company but still kind of small, like a typical startup in San Francisco going through this growth growth phase, right? It's like 100 people and... Um, they just took funding and they're going to go through these wave, these massive waves of hiring people. There's lots of companies in that stage and they all do a lot of research to figure out what other people are paying. So getting information on just one of those companies or one or two of those companies is probably going to be kind of in the ballpark of, of what you're looking for. So this is probably the best way talking to people directly, people who are very, very similar to the position you're applying for. The goal is to find people who are just like you. Similar amount of experience, similar job title, similar level. A lot of jobs have levels associated with them, level one, level two, level five, level six, et cetera. And a lot of companies use the same leveling systems. So if you can do this, this is the best way to do it. Now, if you don't have any friends that are doing the same kind of job, or if people are uncomfortable talking about their compensation, which like we just talked about is, is a thing, this isn't always possible. And if that's the case, you can head to the internet. Now, I've seen some websites out there that have salary information on them, and most of them are pretty dang bad, okay? These are the sites like indeed.com, glassdoor.com, payscale.com. If you go to these websites, you can put in a position. You can put in a experience level. You can put in a location, maybe even a language. Some of them have that on there, like a programming language or something. And it will tell you salaries. 
And those salaries are usually wrong. And I only know this based on what friends have made and what I have made. It just doesn't compare. It's it's either uh, way too high or way too low. It's just not very good representation, even though a bunch of people have put their salaries in. And the only thing that I can imagine is going on here is it seems to be very similar to like a Yelp review, right? People seem to leave Yelp reviews if they really love the place or if they really hated the place. It's either a one star or it's a five star. And on these websites, it seems to be the same. People are either really angry about how much they're making and they're like, man, screw this company. I'm going to go put my salary on Glassdoor.com. Man. (laughs) So that's going to be a low one and that's going to skew the average, right? And then you're going to have some people who are like, really proud of their salary and they don't want to tell everybody about it. So they're going to post on every single website how much they make and they're going to put their name in. They're going to put their email address. Another thing that helped me think about this is, have I ever posted my salary on these websites? And the answer is no, I've never done it, right? So why would I expect other people like me with my experience, with my whatever personality If I'm not posting my salary on these websites, why would I expect those people to be posting their salaries on these websites, right? It doesn't happen. So I would not necessarily use these to get a salary, but there is one website that has pretty dang accurate salary information, and I just discovered this by accident a couple months ago. So at a company I was working at previously, there was by the lunchroom this bulletin board. And on the bulletin board had nothing on it except maybe three or four pieces of paper and they were just pinned next to each other. And nobody ever told me about this bulletin board. So I walked over to take a look at it because I was curious what the heck is posted on here. Is this important? I don't know. And what was posted on there were salary information for a handful of employees that worked at the company. This was really surprising. It showed their name, it showed their compensation, and it showed their position and their level, like to the dollar, right? So that was kind of alarming. I didn't know what that was. I'd never seen it before. I looked a little bit closer and did a little bit of Googling, and I learned about this thing called an H-1B visa. This is a special visa that companies can issue to foreigners, and a foreigner is just a person who lives outside of the United States that's not a citizen of the United States, and this visa allows them to live in the United States and work at their company if they have a specialty skill. So the government has decided, hey, we need software engineers as a country to become stronger, more powerful, more successful, whatever. This is a position we've deemed valuable to the United States. So we're willing to give people visas and live in the United States if they're able to be a software engineer here in the United States. Now, the interesting thing about these visas is their public record. So when a company applies for this visa and say they've brought somebody on site, they've interviewed them, they're like, man, this person's awesome. They give them an offer. They have to take that offer and they have to send it to the government as an application for an H-1B visa. And that includes the compensation that they're going to be providing to these employees. Now, it's only the salary. 
It doesn't include other things like stock options or other benefits like, you know, working from home or commuting benefits or healthcare, 401k matching or anything like that. It's just the salary, but it is an accurate salary and that's still useful information to have. So there is a website and the website is h1bdata.info that lists all of these H-1B visa applications. And it'll show whether the visa was approved or denied, but that's kind of irrelevant because it shows how much that offer was that they are giving to this person to work at the company. Again, that's h1bdata.info, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. The interesting thing about these visa applications is you can filter by company name, you can filter by location, like San Francisco would be a location, Seattle, et cetera. You can filter by years of experience. You can filter by position title. So you can filter by software engineer, senior software engineer, developer, whatever the title is that you're looking at. You can filter by those things, and it's going to show you the median. It's going to show you the mean. It's going to show you kind of a spread of uh, like a distribution graph, and it's going to show you a giant list of all the salaries of all those applications. And these are the exact amounts that those companies have offered. So I did a quick spot check. I looked up most of the companies that I've worked at before. Again, you can look at the exact company you're applying for. So let's say you wanted to apply for Square, right? That's a company I worked at a while ago, like a long time ago. You can type Square in the search box and see all the H-1B applications that the company Square has submitted and the salaries that they offered for those positions. So armed with that information now, which is fairly precise, you still don't know how much you're worth, but you have a pretty good idea of the ballpark amount that you should be asking for when you go in to negotiate an offer. Okay, so you've done all your research now. You have kind of like a ballpark figure in your head of what you're looking for. Compensation-wise, you've either talked to your buddies at work or maybe you have friends somewhere else and or you've done some research on the websites we mentioned. Not very accurate, but, you know, whatever. They look, it, it, gives, you, it gives you something to think about. Uh, maybe you've checked the H-1B visas and you, you're like, wow, okay, I got a good idea. So now at least you have some information. You're not just pulling stuff out of your hat, right? So when you go to the on-site interview, you're you're prepared to receive that offer and you'll have some metric that you can compare it to. And remember, all we have at this point is salary information, right? Unless you've talked to your friends and gotten more, you don't necessarily know what kind of stock they offer, any other kind of additional benefits, but you've got something. So now it's time to talk to the recruiter. And this might be in person, it might be on the phone, it might be an email. They're gonna present to you the offer, they're gonna tell you the salary and anything else that they'd like to include, like stock options, like we mentioned. And it's at this point where the negotiation begins. And you're not gonna be prompted for a negotiation. They're not gonna say, hey, so what do you think about this offer? Do you wanna add some stock options? Or do you wanna increase your salary or decrease your salary and get more stock options? Or what do you wanna do here? They're not gonna do that. What they're gonna say, what the recruiter's gonna say, hey, look, we loved interviewing you. We think you're gonna be a great fit. Oh my gosh, we're so excited to have you join the team. 
we are going to give you this amazing offer and here it is, you know, please sign here that you've received it. We'd love to hear back from you in a week and then, yeah, we'll set up an onboarding and, and get you going. Again, we're super stoked and happy to have you on board. Thanks again for coming out to interview. Can't wait to see you again. It's very positive and it is authentic. I mean, people aren't going to give you an offer in case they loved you, right? So, don't approach this with like a combative mind. They really do want you to work at their company. And you probably, if your interview went well, you really want to work there as well. So the first thing you want to do when you receive the offer is reply and tell them how excited you are to work at the company as well. Because if your interview went well and you really are stoked about working there, let them know. You know, this puts everything off on a, a good start. It says, hey, look, the company really wants me to work there. I really want to work at the company. Let's make this happen. Let's get us to a place where we are both super happy and it's a just a mutually exciting experience, right? Because that's totally possible. So once you've done that, don't be afraid to just say yes. Now, every time I've talked to somebody about Offers, for whatever reason, I'm always told that you should negotiate, right? The offer they're going to give you is, is not the best offer. They're going to give you something that's a little lower than what they can do. But here's the thing. You've done your research. You know what you want. You have an idea of kind of what to expect. If the offer that they give you right off the bat looks pretty good to you and feels good, you don't need to negotiate, right? You don't have to do it. <laughs> I, I've not negotiated offers. I've negotiated some. I've not negotiated others. I just, if I'm really excited about working at a company the, and the offer they've presented to me looks great compared to the research I've done and they are genuinely excited and I'm excited to work there, don't be afraid to say yes. You don't need to negotiate. So there's a very large possibility that's all you need to do. If you do get the offer though and it's a little lower than what you were expecting or a little different than what you were expecting, go ahead and reply and just be real with these people. They're just regular people like you. They're just doing their job. Be real with them and let them know, hey, here's the thing, you know, I've done some research. I've I've talked to my friend at XYZ Company and I, I really feel like the, the salary is just a little bit lower than what I would expect compared to these other companies in the area. Is there any way that we could increase it to this amount? Just I, I would feel more comfortable um, based on what I've seen uh, at other companies in the San Francisco area. And I think my interview went really well. I really hit it off with the team and I'm really excited to work there. Again, you want to re reiterate constantly that this is the company you want to work at. You are excited to work here. I really want to work this out. And for each change on this offer that you are requesting, please provide a reason. It makes it real easy for the recruiter to rationalize this change. So if I have a offer that says, hey, you're going to be making $100,000 a year and 30,000 stock options. And then I look at that and I'm like, wow, you know, that's pretty good. But I looked at some other companies in the area and uh, talked to a friend who's got the same title and working on a lot of stuff. And I even have a little bit more experience than this person. And they're making $120,000 a year. Is there any way that we can increase this to maybe 115, something like that? And the recruiter will either come back and say, no problem. We got it, right? Or they're going to say something like, you know, 
for for this position, we're, we're, we're already at the upper end of the pay band that we want to go with. I don't think we're going to be able to do 115, but here's the thing. We can do 105,000 and then we can give you 40,000 stock options, which will give you much more value than that additional 10,000 in salary. And maybe this is okay with you and then you accept the offer, but maybe you're not interested in stock at all, right? Let's say you're just trying to be at this company for a year and get out of there. You want to have a good experience, but you're not, you don't necessarily uh, believe that there's going to be an exit, right? You don't believe these stock options have value or you're more conservative and you consider them a little bit too risky, right? Instead of coming back and saying, hey, I said give me 115 or I'm not gonna join the company, you can acknowledge that this isn't gonna be a possibility and you can propose some other solutions. So you can say something like, oh, bummer, okay, I get it. You know, that makes sense to me. What if in six months from now, we reevaluate and if I'm doing really good, if I'm performing at a, at a really high level and I'm doing really good at the company, let's reevaluate my salary and maybe we can increase that up to the 115 or the 110, right? So you have a formal reevaluation of your salary six months after the starting of the company, after they've seen all the value that you're able to provide, your performance, right? So that's one way to do it. You say, oh, hey, look, this is great. Let's do this. But I would love to set up an official reevaluation of my salary six months from now where we can talk about this again based on all the value I'm providing to the company. Another way to offset that is to talk about performance bonuses or signing bonuses or any other kind of bonus that you could attach to something that's valuable. So for example, if I need to move from my home in Seattle, Washington to San Francisco to work at your company, maybe I can negotiate some kind of relocation package. And maybe this relocation package is a little bigger than it needs to be, right? So that gives you opportunity to not only move your stuff, but maybe it covers the first two or three months of rent or mortgage, right? So it gives you that little extra that little extra padding. And that is uh, extra money in the bank for you. You can also just have a generic signing bonus of like, hey, this is great. Let's let's stick with this salary. I'm, I'm super stoked. I'm gonna be at this company for a while. But you know, I really was hoping for that 115. Is there any way we can do like a $10,000 signing bonus? Not necessarily part of the salary, but just an initial uh, a signing bonus. What do you think? Um, so that's, that's another way to get to kind of, you know, boost your salary. It's effectively the same. You're still going to be getting paid 115, but it's easier for the recruiter to give you a bonus than to pay you outside of whatever their established pay bands are. Okay. Let's take just a few minutes here to talk about stock options, because if you're joining a startup that's been venture funded, there's a good chance these are going to be part of your offer. And while you're trying to evaluate the, evaluate the overall um, worth of your offer, you're going to have to consider stock options because they are a part of your package and, and oftentimes a pretty substantial part of your package. So the first thing to keep in mind with stock options is they are worth nothing when you receive them. And potentially they will never be worth anything. And not only that, a stock option is not a piece of stock. It is the option to purchase a piece of stock. So this isn't even something you're receiving for free. So you may get, for example, as part of your offer, 10,000 stock options with a strike price of $2. 
So what that means is you're gonna be given the option to purchase 10,000 stock options for $2 each for a total of $20,000. So what the company is saying to you is, we think we're gonna be a successful company. We think we're gonna be able to create a ton of value for our investors and we're either gonna go public or we're gonna be you know, purchased by another company. We're gonna have some kind of event where we get a massive inflow of money and, and people are gonna to want to own stock in us. And when that happens, you're gonna have the option to own 10,000 copies of that stock, and you're only going to need to pay $2 for each of those options. And the next thing they're going to do is they're going to either bring up an Excel spreadsheet, or they're going to have a video prepared or something, or they're going to do it on a whiteboard, and they're going to show you what the current value of their stock is, which is zero, but internally you have like a fair market value, which is usually it's the board of the company and maybe someone else, I don't really know how it works, but you come up with a internal value of what you think your stock is worth based on how well your company is doing today, maybe based on your revenue or whatever. And so they have a hypothetical fair market value for each piece of stock. And they're going to show you, look, the fair market value for stock right now is $36. And we're giving you a strike price of $2, right? That's a pretty big difference. So that means you can buy... $10,000 shares at $2 and then sell them for $36 each and you just made $34 on every single option. Now, you can't do that right away, of course. You have to wait until the options are actually worth something. But part of this pitch of the value of the offer is going to be to communicate to you what these options can really be worth. And in some cases, they really are worth that much. So if you join a company and you are very positive that this company is going to be successful, you believe in them, you, you believe in your heart of hearts that this company is going to surprise the world with its value and these stock options are going to be worth everything that you think they're going to be worth, then please accept the offer and think about that and buy those stock options and become super rich because they are going to give you a lot of money if they actually pay out. However, if you're not sure that this company is gonna be successful and these stock options are actually gonna be worth something someday, then think of them as kind of a bonus and don't rely on them as your sole means of compensation. Make sure that you're getting a salary that you can be happy with on a day-to-day -day basis and treat these stock options as a fantastic bonus that you could get someday if this company is successful. So that's it. I hope this will be helpful for you the next time you're trying to gauge an offer and decide if it's for you or not. You can find the show notes for this episode at healthyhacker.com slash 21. And if you have any questions about this or anything else, go ahead and send me an email at chris at healthyhacker.com. <laughs>